welcome to Two Crickets in the Thorn Tree. I am Gabriel Krauser, and I'm joined by Nicholas Lorimer. How's it, everyone? Here we are, day one million of the lockdown. It's uh... Nicholas is uh, Nicholas is almost giving up on clothes. He's definitely given up on uh, <laughs> t-shirts. Just hold you back. Blades. It's uh, uh, you know when you when you're working from home, every day is a dressing gown day. I like that. I'm slightly more dressed up because I came back to Kharteng yesterday to the inner city of Johannesburg, and I've spent all of today going around uh, the CBD, Hillbrow, Dernfontine, Yeovil, Fordsburg, and then off to Melville to talk to people and take the temperature on the streets. And what is the temperature um, on the streets? Well, dude, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty vibrant, I've got to say. Uh, it's pretty buzzy. Melville locking down. Pretty much no lockdown, uh, excepting for the money. Money cannot be made, but you can do anything else. Uh, and it's, That seems it's, like we've gotten it a little bit in the wrong order then. It's weird that. It's like, it reminds me, it reminded me of, of Ireland. Uh, when when I, I, I studied for a summer in Ireland, uh, when I was a student. And we landed in Dublin and we then got on a bus and drove across Ireland to uh, Galway, which is on the other opposite end of the country. And it takes, let's say, four hours to cross the country, which was almost a disappointment to me. Uh, I was very excited to be taking a cross-country bus trip. You know, I was looking out the window and it was green the whole way. And I thought, yo, this place is like the most verdant, fertile place that I've ever seen. And then I got out of the bus and a few days later we went on a hike. Uh, and I realized that like, it's so much of it is just rock, black, awful rock. But every 10 centimeters, every 15 centimeters, there's a little crevice in that rock that the very clever grass can get its claws into. And then the grass grows up and it spreads out like a little fern. And, you know, the spread is like five centimeters in radius or 10 centimeters in diameter. So the next one spreads and this one spreads. And so from above, it looks like it's entirely covered in grass. But if you actually peel away the grass, it's like like a totally bald dude that's wearing a, a magnificent weave. And so I realized it's, it's kind of like it's not all of it, but a lot of it's like a green desert. And that's what it was like in, in town. It's like the superficial appearance of exactly what town looks like when it's just another Friday. But if you, if you get out your car and you peel back the veil and, and you ask people, what are you doing? What's, is this just another day for you? They say, no, the difference between today and a normal day is that on a normal day, I make enough money to know that I'm not just getting dinner, but I'm paying rent. I'm buying my kids school clothes. I'm sending them to school. I'm, you know, I'm not thriving, but I'm surviving. And 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 that's not what this is. This is this is desperation. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. And I mean, we're we're seeing like sort of weird economic numbers that I don't think uh, anyone has seen for a very long time. 
uh, possibly even in living memory. Stuff like uh, people talk about 17% decreases in economic activity and GDP. Um, totally crazy numbers like that. I, although, on the plus side, uh, I, I've heard, but I haven't looked into it myself, so please take this with a grain of salt, but I've heard that there are some uh, people in the U.S. who are saying that something like 70% of the jobs they've lost, their unemployment rate's gone from, what, sort of 3-ish percent? up to like I think 14 now um, there's there's a thought that approximately 70% of those jobs will come back pretty quickly like within the next couple of quarters um, and it's considered to be fairly temporary uh, that retrenchment so I hope that's true um, because it would it would mean that a lot of people once all of this is over will start to get their get back on their feet pretty quickly, at least in the first world. Uh, here, I'm a little bit more worried about it because we don't have some of the same good fundamentals. Yeah, so let's talk quickly about first world approaches and and uh, and how they differ. So I was looking, similar comments from economists at J.P. Morgan Chase reported in Reuters uh, business section, but they, but they noted that there's been quite a deep difference between America's response and Europe's response. So America's response has been, we've got a very liquid labor market. We like employers to be able to fire their people generally. And that's very much been the case here. So it's like, if you have a business, you like can't do your business, then just fire all your employees and they'll get their unemployment benefits. So they're not gonna go starving. You don't have to worry about like some moral uh, dilemma here. And then as soon as you can open up your store again, you can rehire them or hire different people. Um, whereas in Europe, the thought has been uh, not so much to sponsor the unemployed and allow huge dislocations in the labor market, but rather to prevent the huge dislocations in the labor market. So to say to employers, if you can't pay your salaries because you're not making money anymore, then we'll pay the salaries. Um, generally speaking, I've got to say, for the last, since the 90s, since the Berlin Wall came down and Europe uh, sort of seemed like it was getting a, a, a huge second wind after the great recovery, after World War II, you know, by the 80s, there were problems that were quite deep and you needed some reformers and sometimes you got them, sometimes you didn't. But European growth started to, to drag um, and then it looked like opening up the East would uh, would would give them the dynamism that they need to keep innovating and to and yeah. to keep growing, and and then there was this just this perpetual kind of disappointment in the eurozone, getting the euro, getting everyone to buy into it, circa two thousand. That looked like it should do a lot of good in a lot of ways. It did do a lot of good, but again, the drag kind of maintained. And well, one there, of was, the there, stories, was, there was growth in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, I think Poland has actually had pretty consistently good growth, for example, um, for a long period right. of time. But I mean more in Western Europe. It's like yeah. both should have been growing together. And instead, the West kind of just continued to disappoint. And one of the stories that I grew up with that would appear every week, basically, in The Economist uh, was that Europe's labor market is really uh, stolid. It's, it's hard to fire, so it's hard to hire because you know that if you hire someone, you're kind of making an investment for life. And so you're less likely to take in youth. So you've always got higher youth unemployment rates. You've got 
less kind of innovation coming from your companies because people don't feel that spur um, uh, and, and you've got less lateral movement. It very much goes with the image of Europe as this kind of old continent where everything is sort of frozen in place in like a kind of storybook, at least on the surface way. Yeah. Um, whilst underneath it's like this sort of frozen in stone mosaic. Yeah, but trying to but trying to compete in a very modern world yes. where you've got uh, you know you've got China uh, competing very heavily by. Uh, taking advantage of a labor force that just has much lower expectations of what kinds of rewards you need uh, to justify huge amounts of effort. And, and nowadays, even countries like India and Ethiopia and Vietnam as well. Yeah. So, so I, so I do suspect that America's uh, liquid, America's response of like fire people, we'll take care of them as the government through unemployment benefits, and then you can hire them back. Uh, I think that I suspect that that's going to prove more competitive than the, you know, keep people in their jobs and we're going to keep paying it. But we'll, we'll see about that. But yeah, these are, these, this is a nice example of like a first world problem. Mm. It's not, not a real problem. It's just the kind of problem that you have when you can afford to either subsidize uh, a, a, a full lockdown through Unemployment benefits, or to subsidise a full lockdown through, uh, through 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 paying people's wages. Now we can't afford to do that. We acted as if we could afford to do that, but we can't afford to do that. And you know, I was really irritated. This week started with uh, Saul Musker. Uh, he's kind of I don't know, a very junior guy. He wrote he for Daily Maverick. But then he worked. Then he got a job in the presidency, which I'd been told in advance he was going to get uh, through connections. Let's not get into that. Um, he he wrote this piece, which was misleading in various ways. But one of the things he said is he said the government has already injected eight hundred billion rand into the economy. Now, you know, a nice drive around uh, Hillbrow. Uh, lets you know that that's not true. You ask people, have you been getting your unemployment benefits? Have you been getting your the social grant benefits? Uh, no. The answer is no, no, no. Do you know other people who have? No. Uh, the 800 billion injection, you know, at, at least, you know, a lot of that in any event was redirected funds that were already budgeted for. So that's not really an injection. Uh, and a lot of it hasn't been paid out. Most of it hasn't been paid out. The only money that really has been paid out is, uh, has been sort of bond buyback programs. And even there, it's quite hard to know exactly how much of that has happened. The promise of it certainly did uh, give confidence to markets. But yes. we've been very slow. So the other thing that he's misleading about is, is testing numbers. He sort of he says, look, we've got very few cases compared to the UK, the US, Italy. But we've also got very few tests uh, per population unit compared to those countries. So... We've been slowed rolling our tests. We've been slowed rolling out benefits. And, and even if we do roll out all of the benefits that we promised to roll out, uh, analysts at the Institute have found that that would be like, let's say, two orders of magnitude at least less in payouts per person than the U.S. is, is doing. So uh, and, and, and the reason we're not paying out, you know, literally a trillion instead of 800 billion or 80 trillion uh, rand uh, is because we can't afford to do that. Yeah, well, uh, because we got ourselves into a total um, 
financial crisis in terms of government finance before this began. You know, we, yeah. we went into this rather than in a, in a sturdy tugboat, we went into this with a leaky canoe. Well, or to use the, the medical metaphor, we were on life support mm. and then we got COVID, right? <laughs> Not a good place to be. America was like, economically, I don't care who you want to give the credit to. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, in a way, I think there's an interesting debate about why America's unemployment levels were so low. But putting that to the side, like America went in like a super fit athlete that was, that was uh, you know, had very low body fat ratio and, and could run. An Olympic in, athlete, yeah. In, in five minutes. And then it got to COVID. And we were dying of cancer on life support. And then we got to COVID. So uh, it's, it's really unfortunate that we then decided to, to respond in the, in the same way as what we consider to be our peers in the US and the UK. And you can tell that we consider ourselves, ourselves to be the, our peers, their peers because, well, because that's who we compare ourselves to when we're the president making a speech two days ago. So, Nick, I kind of do want to talk brief. I, I want to talk for like 10 minutes about the president's speech because it is a big thing. He hadn't spoken for two weeks. Mm. And then I mean, he spoke. So and I, there I were interesting views. We, we haven't talked about this, but I actually would like your, your take on this first um, before we go further, which is do you think it was a deliberate response that was from pressure from Steenhazen? Because the DA had started to ramp up the campaign just before that. Uh, uh, where is Ramaphosa? He's not addressing us. He's in hiding. Um, I saw they were producing sort of memes of like just searching for Ramaphosa. Do you think he responded to that? Or do you think that uh, this was kind of, he just felt like the, the narrative, they were losing control of the narrative in general? Um, yeah, no. So I think that, I think that, the, that they, were, they were rattled uh, by a few things. One of them was by the DA. Uh, the DA was putting pressure on the lack of leadership. I, and, and, and just on a side note, I think the DA has been actually pretty good in this 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 crisis so far. Uh, yeah, I think they've really avoided the petty kind of squabbles that usually screw them up. Yes, um, they've been pretty 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 sound. So, but that's one form of pressure. Another form of pressure is the UCT professor whose name escapes my mind just now, who came out on Monday or Sunday and said, "Look." Our testing is such a nightmare that it's taking between four and 14 days after the test has been conducted for the test result to be reported. So that means for hospital patients and for hospitals, if it's taking 14 days to hear whether someone's got COVID or not, the triage and the quarantine regimes within the hospital is meaningless. There's no sense in like keeping all the COVID patients in the same place so that they're not infecting other patients and keeping them apart from the other patients if it takes 14 days to figure out whether someone's a COVID patient or not. Yeah. And that that was very embarrassing. And it kind of spoke to something we discussed a few weeks ago, something I haven't figured out how to write about because it's quite a, it's, it's quite a touchy point. But, you know, if you look at where our testing numbers lie per population unit, uh, in the world, we're in this like strange middle band where we're, we're testing at least an order of magnitude less than the US and the UK and, you know, uh, countries. I think we were somewhere around Albania last time I checked, although that may be out of date now. 
It, it, it hasn't changed much, right? So we're much more than countries that are just basically only testing people in hospital who are sick and like, do we have the COVID or not? But we're testing, we're trying to test like for like developed countries who are trying to do the contact tracing thing and figuring out what the, uh, you know, help figuring out what the true uh, death rate is of this thing, trying to help uh, identify hotspots and all, you know, contact tracing and all of that. But we're not testing enough to really do that. But we because we're trying, we end up sort of wasting resources. You know, it's kind of a falling between two stools scenario We did, I talked about is sort of, it's like kind of trying to compete with the Joneses. My metaphor was because the Joneses have a fancy bucky, you buy a fancy bucky, but then you can't actually afford to put the petrol in the bucky, so it sits in your garage doing nothing. Yeah, That's kind of where our testing is. We could just afford the bucky, but we can't afford the petrol on top of it. Um, I, if you look at our testing now, I've just uh, looked it up quickly. Um, we are sitting at slightly above Cuba, um, a little bit of the way, uh, quite well ahead of Ghana, Ecuador, Ecuador, which has been pretty badly hit by COVID. Um, but we're behind countries like Iran, El Salvador, Georgia, and Bulgaria. And then if you look at the numbers, it's something like we're doing five tests per thousand. Uh, whereas... Uh, US, UK, and that are doing at least 15 tests per thousand, right? So that's it's a lot more. Yeah. Uh, it's a, you know, it's like a decimal point more. It's an order of magnitude more. Um, so, and, and, and they continue to be increasing their testing numbers, whereas ours kind of keep getting stalled. And as we say, even the testing numbers are misleading because it's one matter how many tests you're conducting, it's another matter how quick the turnaround time is from doing the test to having the results uh, reported. So, so I think that was very embarrassing. And it was, it was one of these occasions where, um, uh, where you have an academic, you know, our academics and intellectuals usually want to go through the chain of command. They don't want to say there's a problem on the media and be seen to be criticizing the ANC, they'd rather sort of privately make a criticism and then hope that it figures itself out. But here you most had someone... Of are, who, most of them are pretty comfortable with the ANC and they're sort of, you know, it's the universe and the people that they're, they're warm to. Yeah, but here you've got someone coming out. So I think that was another part of the story. I think another part of the story are the, are the polls. Uh, uh, ANC's been doing its own polls. You know, the polls are showing it's hugely unpopular, the lockdown... Um, another thing is, is sort of the UN, this is another thing we discussed. So the WHO has, has performed extremely poorly and has been very celebratory of South Africa as, as a paradigm example of how you should respond to the crisis. But I was saying from the start, like, let's not hate on the UN. There are parts of the UN that are good and there are parts of the UN that are problematic. And UNICEF has just come out now saying, you know, millions of kids around the world are going to die, probably 200,000 in South Africa. Uh, from lockdown, basically, uh, we had before that a couple of weeks ago uh, the human rights watchdog branch of the UN saying that South Africa had one of the worst records of police brutality, 39 complaints, including murder and rape, uh, footage was going around of police brutality, uh, cases coming, you know, cases becoming famous of, of, of people being beaten to death on the streets. So, I think that there was a lot of, and then big business uh, complaining about the egregious and irrational results. Trevor Manuel yes. coming out. I think when Trevor Manuel comes out and says this is irrational, 
I think that terrifies the ANCs in a circle because if Trevor Manuel, you know, I've I've said since Ramaphosa became president of the ANC, if he was a real reformer, the first thing he'd do is bring Trevor Manuel back into the fold, right? Trevor Manuel is one of the few guys who was part of the really good side of Mbeki, part of the reason that we were getting 5% GDP growth in the 2000s, but was not tainted by the deplorable response to the HIV AIDS crisis. And so he's yeah. exactly the kind of guy that you bring it back in for that reason. And people would say, well, would Manuel rejoin? And my line to that is, you know, if the president knocks on a guy who spent his life uh, struggling for this country's door and says, you know, I'm on my knees here, come and be my right hand man, you know, the, he's, he's going to say yes for honor and love of the country, if for nothing else. Um, or at least. And, uh, <laughs> that's that's another way of it's, putting it. It's very nice to be loved. <laughs> it really is. Anyway, so when so when Manuel, they know. I mean, if Manuel is criticizing the government like that, that's uh, you know what comes next. Motlante criticizes the government, and if Motlante and Manuel and Tito Mbaweni is sitting out putting out tweets saying uh, it, this this consensus style of leadership is really getting under my skin, then yeah, the then, only then three reformers we know of in the ANC are no longer supportive of the ANC. The reformist line no longer exists. So I think those conspired together to to motivate Ramaphosa to try to do what he can to save face. What was your sense? One of the things, one of the where one of the thing people so some people are saying, you know, the, the president's speech was sort of empty of content. It was just sort of a flowery prose. And then some people are saying that it is another great example of leadership. Uh, and some people are sort of worried about the more contentful claims that he made. Where, yeah, look, where do you fall? I, I haven't. I honestly don't have a particularly strong opinion of it. I mean, when it when Cyril speaks, I'm sort of I've, I've become quite jaded. So I I, <laughs> I don't really uh, uh, feel the impact. I think as a lot of other people do. Uh, so I don't consider myself much of a great barometer there. Um, but yeah, look, I think I think as per usual, his style is pretty good in the sense that you know he. Uh, a lot of people really want to like him, um, particularly in the sort of intelligentsia and middle classes and media. And he 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 knows just how to work that um, to get people kind of on side. Uh, you know, he, you say some you you throw some sort of platitudes there about oh how we need to do better. Um, you you kind of admit mistake without being specific, um, and that makes people feel good. Uh, they feel like you're really listening to them. So I thought I right. thought that was that was that was pretty pretty clever of him. Um, but then, like you say, you know, he he comes up with this defense of the uh, of the lockdown that's not great on the evidence. Um, I think he probably does believe that it worked, uh, but you know whether you know I think I think there's a fairly strong case that it didn't. Um, and then, in terms of actual change, which is I think what a lot of people wanted, uh, considering how damaging this thing is now turning out to be. That was where he was obviously weakest, and that's where I think I think this criticism that it was uh, contentless or, or at least a little bit justified. Look, he did say, okay, lockdown, we'll go to level three in the beginning of June, but then there's this whole, but it'll be regionally determined kind of thing. Now, normally I'm quite in favour 
of of a kind of federal or localist approach to things. But that's not really how this is going to be because it's not going to be a localist approach. It's going to be uh, someone in the Thule House um, or the union buildings kind of will make a decision and then instruct the local municipalities to do that. Uh, and it leaves the door so open that, you know, he could say, oh, we're going to level three in every part of the country except Durban, Port Elizabeth, Cape Town, Bloemfontein, Polokwane. At which point, what was what was the point? <laughs> you know? Well, so one of so so, but let, let's dwell on that on, on that for a moment. Uh, if you look at the GDP data of this country, Gauteng is by far the biggest uh, province. Western Cape, next big one. Yep. If you look at it by by municipal level, the the six places you just named produce like. 75, 80% of the wealth in this country. Pretty much. That's Those are the productive hubs. Outside of that, the only production that you have is farming, which makes up roughly 3% of GDP. And some, and some uh, mining. So just, just, in there and there. Let me just underline that again. Farming produces about 3% of GDP, right? All of the countryside that you drive through produces that little, right? So, yes. So, outside of those hubs, the only real product that you have is mining. So if you keep the big business hubs locked down and you and you free everywhere else up, uh, you you couldn't send a more clear message that what has been going along this whole time and what will continue to go along is a lockdown of money, not of people. It'll be impossible to stop people. If, if the big cities are locked down, you know, you'll still be able to travel from big cities to the surrounding areas. As, as I said from personal experience, this is not a lockdown, this is a slowdown. Every police blockade that I've gone through, I have found evidence that there are ways of getting around it illegally if you don't have the right documentation. And generating the so-called right documentation is and easy peasy. As we as we uh, covered in one of our previous episodes, um, one of the policemen actually, without any bribe or anything volunteered some of this information himself <laughs> yeah out of the goodness of his heart right yes <laughs> listen i saw that same cop by the way yesterday coming back to karting so uh that was nice um so so it's 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 really it's just this funny thing where like there's been this creed occur of the left that we've got this weird world where money can cross borders freely but people can't. And, you know, I get part of the complaint there. I'm a huge opponent of illicit financial flows, generally speaking. I think there are extreme circumstances in which it's justified when you have a hugely maladministered state, which is basically like stealing Venezuela. your taxes. Yeah. Then you should be illegally getting your money out of there. Or the Soviet Union, all those people buying dollars illegally, good for them. Um, but generally speaking, you know, I think money should. But here's the thing about money that goes overseas. It doesn't need health support. It doesn't need grants. It doesn't, you know, if it fails to get a job, do crime. It doesn't if it doesn't get a driver's license and then gets in an accident, kind of hit and run because it's worried about getting deported. Money doesn't, money, uh, it just doesn't need the kind of support that uh, flesh and blood beings do, which is why you've got border controls. Um, for people, but this lockdown, my experience of, of going through town, also my experience uh, in the free state 
of visiting a lot of small towns, half a dozen small towns, has been that money can't move, people can. And people are congregating in the streets, people are congregating in each other's houses, people are hanging out, uh, no social distancing. Uh, people, you know, so if the virus, if so here's my suspicion, and it, it does take me back to the Soviet Union. South Africa's, the clearest sense in which South Africa is becoming the Soviet Union is that if you were an alien and you and you didn't listen to what people were saying and you just looked to the effects, you would see, you would suppose that the virus that's being uh, treated here is the spread of money. Like we're doing whatever we can to stop money from changing hands. No laundromats, no steers eating in the building, but like at a different table. No uh, drive-through, uh, no... You know, so many different things. Well, money can't change hands, but people can that, move around. That being said, there has now been a concession to reality in that e-commerce has been allowed, which seems very much uh, we have to give up something to prevent the middle classes eating us alive. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. It's, it's worth, I think it's always worth remembering, and I'm sure the ANC does know this uh, because this is the kind of thing that they do actually know something about. Um, it's usually the middle class that's the really important thing. Uh, for for a revolution, not the not the not the underclass, not the poor. Yeah, um, it's the middle class yeah. that 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 leads the revolution and overthrows you in pretty much every country that 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 you've ever had a revolution. Peasant rebellions, workers' rebellions usually don't go very far. They burn some stuff and then they go home. Yeah, and I think that uh, we yeah we've kind of discussed this before. Part of the you know, the deep underlying paradox of South Africa is that uh, the ANC's base thinks that the ANC has not been doing a good job but continues to vote for them. Yes. Uh, and the ANC, it's not just even that they think their implementation is bad. This is, that's, I think, already a pretty well-known fact. But the deeper fact highlighted in France's latest book, highlighted by so much of the work that we've done, highlighted by our polls, is that the ANC's base's values are at odds with the ANC's policies. The ANC wants to take people's stuff. The ANC wants redistribution. The ANC doesn't like uh, value add. They like value grab as an ideology. You know, they think property is kind of theft. Uh, all property is kind of a product of a racist past. And so the thing to do is cut down the tall poppies. Ordinary South Africans don't feel that way. And so you've got this huge disconnect. And the thing that keeps those two, the, the thing that allows that cognitive dissonance to survive, well, I don't think the ANC is doing a good job at hitting their targets. And I don't like the ANC's targets, um, vilifying racial minorities, vilifying the rich. Uh, that's kept alive by the middle class and the upper yes. class elites who say, you know, you guys might not get it, but we know what's best for you. And in particular, your enemies, you, you, the, the, your real enemies are the people who purport to share your values, um, but in fact are just out to kind of reinstate a kind of apartheid white supremacist uh, octopus. And of the course, uh, there are also quite a few in the middle class uh, who benefit from... Yeah, they're from in the patronage network. The, the patronage network, yeah. Um, whether it be civil servants, whether it be someone who gets a PE contract, whether it be uh, a public intellectual. Media players who get directly paid off yeah. or, yeah. or who get high fives. 
and and get to brag about the fact that they met with Pravin Gordon or the president and isn't he isn't he marvelous? Not naming names. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know, man. I suppose I suppose that covers it. I do just want to say something about the data, but I'm going to start with a metaphor. You go to the you go to swim at the sea, right? And there's a wave coming. And this wave is going to go right over your head. Or maybe it's just going to hit you in your chest, but it, it could knock you right over, right? So you close your mouth, you put your fingers over your nose, and you hold your breath to take the wave. Makes sense. Yeah. And everyone around you, cheers you and says, what a good job for preparing, for being precautionary, for holding your breath before the wave hits you. But then you realize you're still on the beach. So what do you do? You start walking towards the wave. You start walking into the sea. You know, it's, it's, you can't even help yourself. You've got to do it. You've got to swim. And you're still holding your breath. But then you realize that you're not swimming in the KZN where the sand goes precipitously down and if you're even ankle deep the next wave that hits you uh you know you're one meter in the next wave that hits you is going to go right over your head you're like at clifton beach or landadna where you can walk out like 30 meters and it's still knee deep water and the waves are still lapping your groin so what do you do you keep holding your breath that's what we're doing <laughs> i like it <laughs> And one of the big worries is, I mean, the wave is going to get to the point where it starts hitting our chest, starts going over our mouth. And my worry is that if the government loses control because it keeps insisting on holding our breath, that that it's going to lose control and we're going to get a disorderly uh, unlockdown, uh, an unlock, and it's going to be like gasping for air. And if we gasp for air when the wave really crests, that's the then you're just breathing in water. That's how you drown. So let me give you the numbers to explain that. I have calculated using the formula provided by Harvard, strategy professor and mathematician at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem to calculate R, the rate of reproduction for the virus. It's a very rough approximation, but it indicates that uh, the rate of reproduction stayed above one, which means we've continued to have exponential growth. A uh, similar, much more refined calculation was made by an open source group of guys run through UJ. Uh, they find the reproduction of number of the virus to on average be significantly above one throughout the lockdown. Those are two reasons. Uh, a third reason is looking at the death numbers. Now, Michael Levitt, the South African Nobel laureate, uh, has said, you know, please look at these numbers because there's also reporting issues there. Reporting can be overstating things if people are dying of COVID but not from COVID. Uh, and there can also be under-reporting issues if people are dying from COVID but it's, they, they're not being diagnosed or they're just dying at home in the, in the sticks, right? But yeah. they're more likely to be properly counted. I have not found anyone who's looked seriously at these numbers. I have tried to look at these numbers. I've tried to get it published. I've the publication that I've been trying has refused to publish these numbers, but they show very clear increased rate in deaths. We've doubled our deaths 
in the last 12 days, the UK doubled their deaths in the last 22 days, the US in the last 23 days, something like that. Mm. So uh, the rate is increasing the curve. You go to Excel, you say, what's the best fit for our curve? It's a polynomial graph where X is raised to the power of two. There's an expon exponential factor there. Uh, a straight exponential curve where X is the exponent itself rather than the thing being raised to a power is the second best fit. Linear straight line, which means the rate is, is kind of flat, that doesn't fit at all. Um, so what is it? What Our death numbers are around 200 now. Uh, if we keep going at the same trend, we're going to hit 1,000 in about a month, and then 2,000 uh, in about a month and three weeks, and then 4,000 two weeks after that. Once we're getting sort of 2,000 deaths, once we're getting 1,000 deaths a week, those deaths will be concentrated. They are not just going to be spread evenly across the country. And then we start looking at an Italian-style situation. We've got hospitals that can't deal with things being overwhelmed. You've got footage uh, being spread across the country and across the world of awful nightmares in South Africa, and you, you get clamoring for a harsh lockdown. I mean, I've already seen some of that on social media, even just people, whenever the health minister announces on Twitter uh, that, you know, this is the new figure for today, go and look at the replies. And now, obviously, it's not a representative sample by any means of the population. But you can see the sort of responses people have. They're like, oh, President, we need to go back to level five. This isn't working. So here's the thing. The gasp, the thing that I want South Africans, all of our listeners to think about is what it looks like to gasp for air as the wave is hitting your face. Does it mean not locking down? Does it mean opening up the economy? Does it mean locking down? Well, here's what could happen if you try to reintroduce level five in a month and a half if we continue to drag our feet and keep people as economically deprived as possible in between now and then. It means you say full lockdown and we're going to keep you alive by distributing food parcels and social grants. There are going to be hunger lines. Those hunger yeah, lines, we, we have proved that we do not know how to maintain social distancing in those hunger lines. You're going to be spreading the virus like wildfire in those hunger lines. They're going to be starvation mobs, people going out, burning schools, looting grocery stores, uh, looting food parcel distribution centers. That is going to be spreading the virus like wildfire. So a full lockdown in that circumstance, especially if it's met with uh, uh, not just mobs for starvation, but also businesses you know, like the kinds of riots we saw in the CBD, uh, where people are like, we're just sick of this. Uh, it's going to be a major problem. Uh, you're going to have more police brutality. You're going to have more police killing people. That's injuring people. That's going to be overwhelming hospitals. You're going to getting. You're going to be getting the maximum amount of disease, virus distribution, and the maximum amount of death, just at the time when hospitals are already the most overtaxed from the virus. What's the alternative? Complete do nothing. Complete laissez-faire. That's also not going to work. If you have kind of uh, disco parties and guys going to bars and chabines just as the virus hits because now it's been two months and and the waiters and barbers and people are starving because they haven't had a chance to earn a ticky in between now and then 
that's also going to uh, have have a, have a hugely disastrous effect. And this is why I don't think it's a boondoggle to talk about smart lockdowns. I think it's exactly what we should be talking about. We should yeah. be thinking about how do we flatten that curve? Now, the thing is, South Africa's already got a naturally, like our curve is not flat, but the rate of exponential growth here is lower than in other places. Part of the reason I suspect is we had a low initial viral import. In other words, you know, in South Africa, if there were 100 people who had the virus before the lockdown of the borders, and in America, there were 100,000 people who had the virus before the lockdown of the borders, then you're going to expect with the same rate of exponential growth for America to hit the really steep part much sooner. And again, it's like the beaches. America's beach, if you've got a high initial viral load, it's like going into a beach in KZN where it immediately drops uh, and you get the waves crashing in your face. Uh, We're much more like Camps Bay where you can walk out a long way, but eventually at Camps Bay, the shelf does fall down underneath you. You go 30 meters out and then you do suddenly have nothing but 30 meters of ocean beneath your feet. We'll get there. We did did really see that in in the US and and Italy. I mean, they, they... the governments were only kind of waking up to the infections just as they started to hit their peaks. I mean, when, yeah. when did they actually close the, you know, New York, New York went from uh, the mayor, worst mayor in America, Bill de Blasio, um, saying you need to fight the stigma against Chinese people and go out to the Chinese New Year's festival to within a week, pretty much closing everything in the city completely down. <laughs> that's that's so, a good way to do things. <laughs> No, it's not perfect, but it but but notice that it is a lot more like taking your like holding your breath just before the wave yes. crests. Now, as it turns out, you want to hold your breath like four weeks were, before the wave crests. You yeah, don't want to probably, hold it. They were probably a week a week too late. Uh, yes, if they'd done it one week earlier, it would have been optimal. Yeah, or, or I've, from the numbers I've looked at, I'd say two weeks. Um, but their big problem. Uh, okay, but I want to segue to another topic. Um, but but before doing that, I, I do want to put a bow on this. We need right now the exogenous factors that have kept our curve flatter. Initial viral load probably very low because the travel numbers much lower to here than they are from the heart, from the epicenter, and and the and the first massive spreads in Europe than they are in Europe and in the US and so on. The second thing, the second strong exogenous factor is we've had summer and what I call the endless autumn. I mean, I love Joburg because the autumn kind of lasts forever. And it's true in so much of South Africa. We have this very short winter, right? But the winter's coming. So that exogenous factor no longer matters as we hit winter. The initial viral load exogenous factor no longer matters as we hit winter. You think we have 7,000 cases because we've got 7,000 confirmed cases in this country? It's crazy. You look at the death rate numbers, you look at the R reproduction numbers, uh, uh, accounting for the poor testing, we've had exponential growth for the last two months. By this stage, we have, I say, the kind of viral load that America had uh, sort of a, a month before it hit its peak or, or maybe two months before it hit its peak. We are now kind of sitting in the same position they were sitting in in January, February. So, yeah. so March, sorry. Um, so those are exogenous factors that are no longer in our our favor, but were in our favor. And that means that right now is not the time to think that just because the lockdowns haven't worked, and I don't think that they've worked, uh, because they've been stupid, they've driven people into penury and that's going to kill 
kill more people. They haven't worked at saving lives because, you know, the best actuaries in the country think that they've killed more people already than will die from the virus, even if the virus completely spreads throughout well, the country. I mean, and in, that's our, in, our, in our Keeping Liberty Alive uh, report this week, we actually talked about, I think, 50 people just being killed by police brutality or army brutality so far, Yeah. Um, which is obviously it's not as high as the virus, but that's still, you know, pretty bad. And the worst of it is yet to come. When the virus starts killing thousands of people in this country, that's when the police brutality is going to be crazy because that's when the police, that's when the government is going to be the most tempted to return to a heavy lockdown. And that, you know, if we went in on life support, going into a level five lockdown in a month where people have already depleted all of their savings, where people have already come to distrust the government because they've seen how stupid and vindictive and spiteful the regulations have been against liquor, against tobacco, against e-commerce. It is going to be, the, the social trust uh, has been so badly eroded that I think it's going to be, I think that's when you're going to see the nasty police brutality. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're going to see the nasty riots and those riots are going to be lethal too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that right now really is a good time to be smart. I think keeping schools closed because of the fact that 60% of kids live with their grandparents, uh, is a, I think that is a smart call. I think that, you know, you want to keep bans on very large gatherings, about 50. And I think aside from that, you want to allow the what intangible about, what about hand. These, to, what about yeah. these studies that are saying now that uh, kids don't really spread the virus? I'm, I myself have been... A bit hesitant. I mean, so we've gotten a lot wrong about this virus so far in terms of the science of it. And so I'd yeah. rather stay on the cautious side of that. I don't know about you. Yeah, so there are also studies that show that kids do share the virus. And um, the, 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 th the sort of there's a there's a factor problem here. Right. So if kids uh, if on average kids get the virus, here's the first problem. Kids show symptoms. Already, let's say 80% of people who get the virus are showing very few symptoms. Yeah. Uh, let's say 95% of kids who get the virus show no symptoms. That's a very safe claim. Uh, that means the amount of kids who are getting tested for having the virus is already much lower. Yeah. yeah. And that is going to distort your exactly. further computations about. They're, they're just, what they're just not the spread. priority right now because we've seen that, uh, you know. It's, it's the old that are really getting decimated by this. Um, although, um, I've seen some news stories that are written very much in a style to kind of panic people, so I'm not sure how much to trust them. But they are claiming that there are um, sort of quite rare blood diseases, like I think uh, Kawasaki disease is one of the names of them, that seem to be yeah, spiking I find that, kids. Yeah, the Kawasaki disease, I've looked into the history of Kawasaki disease. It's a very... You, most most academic papers about Kawasaki uh, start by saying, you know, this is one of the more enigmatic syndromes uh, yeah. that we deal with. In other words, it's kind of like uh, what some people refer to as yuppie flu. It's like it lives in this gray zone where it's not even clear that it that it's a, that it is an actual disease mm -hmm. and not just sort of symptoms from other, from various different causes producing similar symptoms and so you think you've got a syndrome when really you've got a, a series of symptoms whose true etiology has not been identified that's not to say that there isn't evidence that there is such a thing it's just to say that it's really 
it's really esoteric. Uh, so I'm I'm hesitant about connections between that and and I've and I've read I've read uh, preprint uh, journal papers th that I've said you know let let let's not put the cart before the horse. If you've got one very big unknown, which is the novel coronavirus, and you've got another yeah. very big unknown, uh, Kawasaki syndrome, then uh, sort of finding connections between the two uh, is highly speculative. Um, so, so yeah, so, and, and in any event, even those who say it is happening, it's, it's, it's a, as a portion of people dying, uh, it's, it's less than a thousandth of the percent. Yeah, it's still a very small amount, but I think, I think the sort of more general point here is just that, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff we really still don't know about this. Like maybe it, it, it does sort of mess up kids, but just much further down the line, um, yeah. So here's so 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 two things that we do know. We do know now, with very high levels of confidence, that there are two separate antibodies that your immune system produces amongst people who beat the virus. Both of them latch onto the what are called the spike proteins uh, to prevent the virus from being able to enter your cells. Basically, the spike protein is like a key that opens the door to your cell and then the virus gets in there and then it does a nasty work. And so it's like, if you imagine someone's got a key to your house, if you could break the key, then they couldn't get into your house, right? Yeah. So it turns out to be very hard to break the key, but one way to render the key ineffective is if you could take some sticky gunk and wrap it around the key, then it's like becomes a stick, you know, then it just becomes like a hom homogenous stick. Then you put it in the hole. It's no longer lining up in the right way to open the lock. And uh, two set, each anti antibody independently has been shown to be able to do this with some success rate. But when they both do this, there's like a nearly 100% success rate at stopping the virus from being able to enter your cells. So we now know, in short, how the body stops the virus. And this is a major breakthrough because once you know how the body, the body, if you look at how, um, you know, I've spoken to epidemiologists. In fact, a family friend of mine is an epidemiologist, got his PhD in Oxford, uh, Brian Williams. And he uh, explained to me sort of how some of this stuff works since I was a kid. And I've always been interested in it. And the point is that your own immune system uh, has your T cells there are, there are T cells that are basically like little laboratories where they get bits of the virus and then they identify, they trial different uh, kinds of antibodies. They sort of generate random antibodies and they trial them against the thing. And then they, when they find something that works, then they hyperproduce that thing. Now, his, it's one of the things, if you speak to an epidemiologist, they, they kind of get misty-eyed. And it's like when religious people talk about God or when uh, lib uh, sort of libertarians talk about freedom and stuff. Um, yes. It's like this is the, the, the most amazing, the body, you think the mind, the brain is like a complicated thing. This, we have all of the, in all of the resources in the world could not produce a laboratory that is as effective at beating this virus as, as, your, own, as your own T cells. And yeah, I think here's how we know that's true. We, we're racing for a vaccine, right? What a yeah. vaccine is, is just a way of getting your T-cells to, to accelerate that experiment. To do the work anyway. Uh, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've heard that sentiment quite a lot of times. I mean, you know, it's it's going to take us, what, 
12 months at best to develop a vaccine against this thing, uh, maybe longer or, or, you know, we still haven't developed proper treatments against it, although it looks like we, we might be getting yeah. a bit closer. Whereas to most and people... Your body works out how to kill the virus in two weeks. Yeah. It's amazing. And now we know how the body knows how, how to do that. So that really refines our ability to, to try and tailor either medical therapies, which means just like medicines like hydroxychloroquine, what do you want to mix with that to give it the best chance of stopping the virus from doing it? Or immunotherapy, which means kind of trying to get uh, those immune systems from people, those not immune systems, you can't take a person's immune system, those antibodies from people who've generated them and get them to people who need them, uh, sort of blood therapy, but plus plus, because you don't want straight blood therapy has got a lot of problems. You don't want to just sort of take someone who's. Uh, and then the third thing is it gives the vaccine guys the idea of what kinds of immune, what the immune system response is that they want to trigger. So that's big. Another big thing is uh, the the monkeys that have we've got a vaccine that's worked on at least six monkeys. Um, now, what's interesting about that story, okay, so from a medical point of view, it's really exciting and we'll see where it goes. I mean, vaccines have been made that work on monkeys before they don't work on us. So it's hopeful, but it's, it's, it's not a sure thing. But here's what's interesting about that story to me. That story was a very long form version of that story. It was published in the New York Times on April 27th. And it didn't go anywhere. And then Reuters and a couple of other publications picked it up two nights ago. And it was, and, and it was picked up sort of around the world. And that is like a scary indication of what's happened to the New York Times, in part. In part, I think there's also like just people are exhausted and you don't know what to go for. What's it that but they were once the kind of publication, if they put something, if they've got a headline then everyone, and it seems important, everyone repeats it. Now it's like they've got a headline and it's like, well, let's just wait a little while for some real journalists <laughs> to go and figure out. Uh, what, what's what, happening there? And I think it's unfair because the original journalist at the New York Times, I think he's great. Um, what's, it, yeah. what's it that Trump calls them, the failing New York Times? Maybe they're not failing financially, but they seem to be failing in other areas. That's a really scary indication of that. Okay, um, let's 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 move on to. We're already talking about America. Well, uh, well, we are we are we are running pretty pretty close to the end of time. So whatever we do now, it's going to have to be short. So yeah, Nick, I want you to tell me about like. Your feeling, your feelings on the uh, what's going, what's going on in the American right? Okay, so look, I I generally describe myself as a person of the right, so this is very much a kind of in a, in a certain sense, it's an intertribal feud here. Um, but there is a particular faction of the American right, and it ranges from people who are kind of more reasonable about this to people who are completely thick about this, uh, which is that. There's a group now um, led by a guy called Rusty Reno, who is a guy who runs a magazine called First Things, which is like a right-wing Catholic intellectual journal, basically. Um, and he went on a sort of weird tweet storm the other day where he said that uh, the veterans of World War II would never wear masks because they're not cowards. And wearing a mask, whether to protect someone uh, from the virus or to protect yourself from the virus are two different species of cowardice uh, and that uh, it's it's damaging to the soul. And, you know, I've heard softer versions of the story where, uh, you know, these mandatory mask things are kind of 
draconian and they're overstepping their mandate and really we should just be you know uh focusing on uh on some of the other social distancing stuff and just learning to live with the virus because we're not going to be rid of it for so long we need to just go on with our lives that's the kind of slightly better version of that argument although i i still don't find it that convincing um but there's a certain chunk of the right that's and I, I understand this impulse because you know there's a lot of people trying to make hay of this this disaster um trying to you know push their silly communistic ideas on everyone but but there's yeah. a group who's who's decided that really the real problems here it's not the people dying it's not the people losing income although they'll obviously say that in the sort of preamble to when they go on about this uh the real problem is some sort of esoteric miasma of fear it's the fear that's really the enemy here and we need to fight the fear and this is such a common motif in in modern uh, uh, sort of intellectual discourse of yeah. finding some kind of very esoteric uh, nebulous uh, yeah. nebulous cloud-like enemy and then fighting it like uh, a lot of this sort of um, social justice warrior stuff uh, you know, about fighting whiteness. You know, whiteness usually ends up being, rather than something specific, it usually ends up being a sort of, more like an attitude, uh, really, than, than anything else. It's like something that can't really be yeah. felt, except when it can. You know, that sort of seems to change depending on the, yeah. the argument like, that's being made. I know it when I see it. I can't define yes, it. Yes. It's, like, uh, it's like umami. Yes. Look, I'm open to such things like that. It is sometimes a bit difficult to define some of these these problems. But really, I think there are a lot of intellectuals who are losing complete touch with reality. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's really counterproductive. Like, you'd think, we talked about this last time, you'd think that uh, <laughs> that this would focus people in the concrete world a little bit. It's really not doing that. And this is yeah, yet another great. example of that of that silliness that's emerging. So, so my, so my pet peeve of the week is sort of more from the left, I suppose. You know, through university, I identified myself much more on the left. Uh, so we're we're doing a good job of bashing our own, or <laughs> you know, to the ex, you know, I think we're both pretty. Uh, anyway, I, I um, when I went to UCT for a semester. There was this guy called Anton Taylor, who was the first student celebrity that I came to know. And I knew that there were such things as student celebrities because my mom went to UCT long before me during apartheid. And, you know, she, she still talks about, you know, the, the drop dead gorgeous, sexy union guys who were out there on the step shouting about how evil apartheid was. And everyone knew who they were and everyone wanted to go to the same parties as them and so on. Um, and Anton Taylor was this guy for us. I think he was on the SRC. And he was kind of a bit woke before the term. And, you know, he's really buff and he likes wearing skirts. So he's kind of a bit of a gender bender, and, yeah, pretty girlfriend. It's, you know, he's like hairy chest and he's always not wearing a shirt. And he's just like, whenever he was at a party, I remember the first time I, I saw him at a feeling. party. He was like, yeah, you're sporting your hairy chest right now. Dude, the first time I saw him at a party, it was at Mark 1, and he was, like, literally being carried by, like, four other dudes with, like, a posse of 13 girls around him. He was, like, not wearing yeah, that's anything. A, that's a bit more alien to me. <laughs> oh, Nicholas, don't be – don't be – don't humble brag now. I know. I know. Okay, but we won't tell our listeners too much. Anyway, so he came out with this uh, Facebook 
uh, screed, which many of my friends shared. And he's, and it was called white shame. And he said, you know, for a long time, people talk about white guilt, but they never talk about white shame. And then he sort of says, you know, government is being criticized by all of these people. Uh, and it's just fucking, sorry, it's just shameful. Uh, it's just white racism. They can't handle the fact that a black-led government is doing a really good job. And look how much better we're doing than the US and the UK. Sort of rehearsing the same kind of no-testing correlated contextualized nonsense. And I just want to, you know, I've got this esteem point, right? That like, what is a race? My, my, I've convinced myself that a race, you know, race is a hard thing to define. Um, I've convinced myself that a race is a unit in the economy of esteem, that it's an esteem team. That is the kind of thing that you, where there's shared pride and there's shared shame and the ready analog is a fan base for a soccer club, right? If someone of this race does well, then we all are happy together. Even if we didn't do well, even if we don't get any money or, or, or power or anything out of it, we just feel yeah. good seeing one of us do well. And this is really uh, how, how races work. And it's important to note that it's not a skin color thing, right? So you can be on team black, even if you're white, the black guy does well. He says this, you know, this award goes out to all my homies. You're one of those homies. You feel proud of that. You feel great. Or uh, a black guy does something terrible. And you feel like, ah, oh, this is so bad. This is embarrassing our team. Or you can be a, a black guy on team white. There certainly were such people during the apartheid era uh, and so on. So, so, so white shame, to feel shame on the basis of your race, this seems crazy to me. And I think an, an easy way to point that out, you know, here's what most people are going to say, I think. If you haven't thought about it much, they're going to say, well, imagine talking about black shame. Wouldn't that be weird? That's I, That kind of analoging just ends up driving the sort of team sport thing, right? It's like, well, your our player in the soccer team did this and he got a red card. Imagine if your soccer player did this, shouldn't he get a red card? It, it keeps up that combative thing. That's not the right approach, I claim. I say the right approach is to say, well, what about white pride? Doesn't it strike you as odd to promote the thought that because some white person's done something well, you as a white person should feel proud of that. Uh, Isaac Newton did a really good job of figuring out a better way to describe the universe than people before him had been able to do. And he was white. Should white people feel proud of being white because Isaac Newton did that? Should white people feel proud because a white guy landed on the moon? That seems really like the backbone of white supremacist racism. That's the problem. The problem is precisely taking pride in your race and then translating that into a political movement that gets the levers of power in its grips and then uses that to reinforce the asymmetry between achievements of one race and achievements of another race by brutally oppressing people of another race. That's the problem. Taking pride in Aryan achievements as opposed to Jewish achievements. That's the problem. Uh, and I think that taking pride in one's race can sometimes be useful uh, like black pride movement can be useful during an anti-apartheid resistance movement. Jewish pride can be useful in trying to uh, sort of uh, resist the Holocaust and so on. But I think uh, generally speaking, it's kind of a bad idea. And when, when you're in a multiracial society like South Africa, which is trying to uh, sort of uh, live under a constitutional regime of non-racialism, uh, I think that taking pride in one's race or taking shame in one's race is crazy. And I think it would be crazy... Black shame is also a scary idea. I wouldn't want to say because, because Zuma 
and unfortunately I, I, Ramaphosa and, and so on kind of presided over looting of a country that all black people should be ashamed of themselves. It seems just I, I've deeply, deeply that, wrong to me. I've seen that sentiment expressed before. Um, people say, uh, I, I, you know, in, in personal interactions and in uh, more public spaces, I've seen where people say, oh, look, this is, this is a video of like, I don't know, a black person struggling with some task or something like that and then yeah. people will say oh these people are making our, our whole nation or our whole race look bad and they'll say that explicitly and it's yeah. a very it's it's like what has it got to do with you <laughs> it's ghastly man that's the enemy to me that's the enemy the enemy is that's the enemy of, of liberty that's the enemy of freedom of thought freedom of expression freedom of association uh the freedom to choose the freedom to be yourself is guilt by association, is likewise celebration by association. I don't mind it in certain contexts to do with nationhood. I don't mind taking pride in your nation's achievements because a nation is a real thing defined by a well, tax I system. Think, I think, I, think right I, I would like to... But there is no race to tie us all together. There's nothing to tie me to other white people on the other end of the planet. There's nothing to tie me to white people on the other end of the planet a thousand years ago. And 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 and, and that's true for people of all races. There's I, I, no I, I think I'd like to quote uh, the American commentator Jonah Goldberg here in his formulation on uh, nationalism, which is sort of tangentially related to this, uh, which is that uh, nationalism is a lot like salt. Um, without it, you can really, you know, have something a bit bland and that's not that good and doesn't get preserved. Uh, with a little bit of it, it enhances the flavor, it preserves something a little bit better, and it makes stuff better. But too much of it, then it just makes you sick. Yeah. And uh, I think that's that's actually the approach to pride in a lot of these cases as well. It, it should yeah. be a very similar thing. A little bit of it, it's good. We are sort of tribal creatures as as per our, our nature. We want to take pride in, in a group. We want to feel like we belong yeah. to a group. But we can choose kind. good groups. We can be proud of our yes. soccer team. Our rugby teams, we can be proud of our country, we can be proud of our families, we can be proud of our businesses that we work with, we can be proud of our universities. Uh, my, my race, look, everyone must make their own choice, but I see nothing to be proud of or ashamed of in my race because it just doesn't seem like the kind of hook that I yeah. can hang yeah. pride or shame on. It, it's too uh, slippery, it's too nebulous, it's too ill-defined. And when I see people like Anton Taylor do this and I see the white people that I saw share this on Facebook, I, it reminded me of a joke uh, told by Slavoj Zizek at a, a lecture that he delivered at Princeton almost a decade ago when I was there and that he's rehearsed more recently. Uh, three Jewish guys uh, get to heaven. One Jewish guy says, uh, he, he was really wealthy, he says, oh, you know, I made so much money, I gave so much to my family, to the community. But God, you can look straight into my soul and you can see I am nothing. And then the rabbi says, oh, Yahweh, I have brought the spirituality of thousands of people to a higher level. I have presided over weddings and funerals and mitzvahs uh, and breezes. And it has been an honor for me to serve in your name all my life. But you can see into my soul and you can see that I am nothing before you. And the third guy says, you know, I was very poor. Nothing worked out. I tried this. I tried that. It didn't work. I tried to get married. It didn't work. I tried to have a good business. It didn't work. My whole life was a failure. God, you can just see I am nothing. 
and then the two other turn to each other and they say, who is this schmuck to say he is nothing? <laughs> I like it. What is this guy saying? He's nothing. Come on, man. Dude, and I love that joke because it kind of, it points to, okay, let me tell you one. Oh. Gabriel's disappeared there. <laughs> Let's see if he comes back. Ah, <laughs> oh, there you are. Uh, sorry, Nick. Broke up you there. disappeared. I broke yeah, up there. You disappeared for a second. Okay, so, so, so another joke that goes really well with this joke uh, that is in Modern Family. Most woke, like most anti-Zizak kind of uh, TV show you can imagine is you've got a guy who says, uh, you know, my whole life didn't work out, so I decided at 50 to become an artist. And then his friend says, dude, I know exactly what you mean. Like my whole life until I was 50, I was just this like millionaire, billionaire, and I was just like banging hot babes and doing drugs, having this very decadent lifestyle. So then I decided to become an artist so that I could bang hot babes and take drugs and live this very hedonist lifestyle. Uh, and this guy's like, oh, shit. And the point is, like, there are different ways of getting to the same thing, right? And if the thing that you want to get to is being superior, you can do it in different ways. You can, get, you can be superior by saying, look at me, I'm great because I've got such great achievements. Or you can be superior by saying, look at me, I'm the most humble. I'm the most self-abnegating, most self-flagellating. I'm the most ashamed of myself of anyone. And that is the <laughs> highest that there is, right? And so talking about how white pride sort of white shame it's just another way of being proud of being white like we are the best race at being ashamed of ourselves <laughs> and i think it's really gross it's really gross yeah. and again i don't mind the thing in general like if a religion wants to define itself by its humility and it has practices and rituals that really bind together people and they do good works and so on i get that and germany my favorite like music video comes out of germany five years ago where they're like deutschland it's like this heavy medieval video. It's kind of weird. Anyway, but the great line is, we are tolerant. We are uh, open-minded. We are proud of not being proud, right? And for a country to be proud of not being proud, that makes sense to me because a country can actually do things. A country can send peacekeeping troops. A country can send aid. A country can gather taxes and redistribute them to people. A country can enforce property rights in a way that incentivizes people to add value and respect each other and take care of each other. And because that country is a collaborative project, it can have pride. That makes sense to me. But uh, for, for white people to be proud of not being proud on the basis of race, it's just that just strikes me as extremely gross. And it's and it's my pet peeve example of something that the coronavirus, it was always there. I'd also heard it before. Um, but the coronavirus is just kind of, you know, yeah, uh, shone a light on it. Yeah. We must pull it to a close there. Um, I'm not sure how much we've gone over time, but it's by at least some amount. Uh, In six so, minutes. Something like that. Um, but, you know, we've done worse. <laughs> we've definitely. We have. We have. <laughs> Thank you for enduring. Uh, the sun has set in the course of this, and I am now uh, looking forward to a, a nighttime drive through the streets of Ooh, uh, the CBD. Through the, the post-apocalyptic wasteland of a sort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, and on that note, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, 
I actually went and looked at some of the reviews we'd gotten uh, recently, or not that recently, but uh, uh, it was it was really nice. So we are, um, according to iTunes, assuming mine's not showing me faulty information, uh, more highly rated than the Charlie Kirk show in America. <laughs> so, which so is that, hilarious. If if you want a real giggle, Google Charlie Kirk. Wow, he's a he's an interesting chap. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, <laughs> One of the most that, influential youth leaders in America, they say. Yes, and, and we, we're apparently, according to iTunes reviews, more influential than him. So take that, Charlie Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear, hear from you guys. Um, we'd love to, to, to get more reviews, more five-star ratings, five-star only plus. plus. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and thank you to those of you who are friends of the Institute of Race Relations. Um, we know it's a difficult time, as Gabriel's uh, talked about. Uh, I think given us a good picture of in the country. Um, so thank you to all of you who are who are putting your money up in funding the fight for freedom, liberty, and all good things. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, we will catch you on the next episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. <laughs>